the things that you do because you've been told it's going to be good for your career or you've convinced yourself it's somehow going to be good for your career but you don't like and you don't really have any interest in are never the thing that is good for your career, ever. They're always the thing that never comes out and that no one ever sees and is terrible and embarrassing. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, you probably know her from the newsroom or Matchpoint or Doll and M, and you'll definitely recognize her in Disney's new Mary Poppins coming out this December. But Emily Mortimer didn't have a typical path to acting. She grew up in London, studied Russian, and called acting a guilty pleasure, something she surely wouldn't make a career out of. On this episode, she talks about overcoming imposter syndrome, feeling like she didn't belong, not being trained as an actor, and she also opens up about managing trade-offs as a mother, producer, writer, and actress, how she balances her family and career, learning to prioritize what's truly important. Emily Mortimer, welcome to No Limits. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, and a special shout out to Heatha Herzog, our mutual friend who, yes. who helped make this happen. She, yes. She's a, a beautiful, brilliant woman herself. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about your story. So you start out in London. Yes. Go to Oxford. Yes. Study English and Russian. Yes. <laughs> your father is a famous playwright himself. Were you always thinking I'm on the path to being an actor? Oh, God, that's a complicated question for such a simple question. Um, (laughs) No, not necessarily. No, I I always thought of acting as a slightly sort of guilty pleasure um, that I did. I always did. I always did it. Like I always um, put on plays on the stairs for my mum and dad and subjected them to hours of me. I mean, plays is a very grand term for what I was offering up. It was more like adverts for personal automatic washing powder that I'd seen on the television <laughs> that I was reenacting um, uh, endlessly. And, and they would sit and patiently sort of applaud. Um, and I did school plays all the time. And I did plays at university all the time like crazy. And I loved it. But I guess I had delusions of grandeur. I sort of thought that was maybe a bit... Um, not serious enough and mm. that all this money had been put into my education <clears throat> and um, that I should sort of do something proper. And um, I, I studied Russian, as you said. I loved Russian and Russia and uh, everything to do with it. I was fascinated by it. So I think I thought maybe I would go there and do something there. I don't know what I really thought I was going to do, but it, it wasn't acting. Uh, but I was probably in denial because it was the acting was really the only thing I properly got up in the morning to do especially once I got to university I didn't do any work and I just performed in plays and finally an agent came to see a play I was in um, which was an adaptation of Kafka's uh, The Trial and it was a stage play version directed by Tom Hooper, who is um, a, a Oscar winning, I think, um, director who directed The King's Speech, among other things. Um, 
And uh, I was in this production at, at university and um, an agent uh, happened to come to see the play because her daughter was at Oxford and she just thought she'd come and see this play. And Did you know there was an agent? No, I had no idea. And then I, I got a little note in my pigeonhole, a, a letter from her about four days later saying they'd like to take me on. Um, and and so I went and met them in London and I started auditioning uh, for jobs. And I got a job before I left, actually. I got a job um, starring in a Catherine Cookson uh, television miniseries, which is a kind of um, sort of costume drama. It's like romance costume drama, quite lowbrow, not like kind of the BBC Pride and Prejudice, but like <laughs> the lowbrow version of that called The Glass Virgin. When And I was the glass virgin and I went around in, 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 in crinolines and with wigs that looked like they'd been dropped from outer space onto my head. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that was my first job and I, I was doing it pretty much, you know, I think it was the summer that I left university. I, I was starring in this thing on the television and, and making money and then I just kept getting work and I kept sort of having to shelve my... Um, notion of of doing something serious and and not pissing away my education, my fancy education, um, till the next year or the next time. And then, but I kept getting work, and and so I, it kept carrying on and on and on. And I, I think at some point I realized that I was kidding myself if there was anything else I was going to do, and um, and that maybe. Um, my life was telling me something, and that this was what I was meant to be doing. Was there? Something in the back of your mind asking yourself throughout all of this, am I really, is this really the right thing for me? Or how did that manifest itself? Yeah, I think I had and still have at times a a lot of kinds of conflict about it where I felt lots of different things. Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's a strange job acting. It's a very, you know, incredibly exciting on the one hand and, and fulfilling in so many ways, but also um, you know, very insecure making, um, and uh, I, um, I don't know. It's it's uh, yeah. I was I was conflicted about what it was. I was. It felt like showing off or something. And I also had terrible um, imposter syndrome because I'd never been to drama school. I'd never trained. I'd I'd, I'd got this academic education, but I'd never I'd never you know, trained to be an actor. Um, and so I kept thinking I was going to sort of get sent home, you know, every time I showed up to do a job and that that, that they were going to finally realise that I wasn't any good and that they needed someone that had been taught how to do this particular thing and that and that, that wasn't me. Um, so I had this imposter syndrome mixed with a kind of neurosis about whether or not it was a serious enough thing to be doing and was I really adding anything to the world. And at that stage, I really wasn't because I was in quite a lot of bad television. I was in the kind of thing that you would dread people actually watching. And my worst nightmare would be meeting someone who'd seen me in whatever thing it was that I'd been in on the television the night before. Um, <clears throat> so I didn't feel like I was adding much to the universe and I was just getting more and more sort of insecure about myself in so doing. Um, and it wasn't until I met my husband, actually, I know this is about strong women and I don't want to credit 
a strong man with having. <laughs> well, I think a partnership of any sort is useful exactly. for all of us. I, I think he deserves, he does deserve the credit in a way for having said to me, what the hell are you doing? Why do you keep carrying on with this? I was complaining all the time about how embarrassed I was about this job that I was doing and how I, I didn't know whether it was the right thing and, and, and maybe I should do something else and should I do something more serious with my life? And and he really um, was tough with me and he said, but this is just ridiculous. Like, why are you wasting time on this if this isn't what you want to do? And if it isn't what you want to do, go and do something else. And you you have got a great education and there's a million things you could do. And um, I think it's pathetic listening to you bang on about, you know, oh, you're so embarrassed to do this thing and, and uh, when, then don't do it or right. do it. Um, and it was good for me because I realized, no, I did want to do it, but I wanted to do it kind of on my terms. I wanted to stop doing it in a way where I was just going from pillar to post, just taking what was given me and actually try to find a way of having some kind of... Um, you know, being the master of my own destiny. In a, if, I mean, it's a very difficult thing to do as an actor or as any kind of self-employed person, um, but particularly as an actor. Uh, but I, I did sort of have that kind of come to Jesus moment where I thought, no, I, I, I do want to do this, but I want to do it in a way that makes me feel good about myself and about it. And I thought I'll give myself a year and see what happens. And it was funny. It's funny how when these thoughts occur to you, it's it sort of things change without you really having to, I mean, I don't know what I did very much apart from have that thought. But then um, this this film, Lovely and Amazing, directed by Nicole Holofsen, um, came into my hands, this script, and they said they were looking for the uh, the girl to play to play one of the one of the three main women um and uh and i just fell absolutely in love with the script and it was to play a california girl an actress living in la um in a in a in a family of of three women and a younger adopted sister a younger african american adopted sister and it became it just suddenly felt like the right thing to be doing and it made me happy and it felt like oh god these are these are cool people and this is kind of a noble profession in a way and and no i do want i don't want to give up i don't want to to go off and do something sensible i want to carry on doing this um but yeah it took a while for me to to really kind of come to terms with i think those are very clarifying moments in your life in your career where you realize that you're not boxed in Yes. Where you recognize that while whatever it is that you're doing feels like a day to day, you know, trudging through whatever it is that you're going through, all of a sudden you can tell yourself, actually, no, there's there's a million other alternatives. Here. Yes. Now, not everybody is as lucky as to have that. But I would argue that the vast majority of people, if you look around, you will see that there are other options for yes. you. Yes, yes, totally. And, and it's helpful to have another person sometimes say that to you. Yes. My husband has said that to me. My friends have said that to me. My sister has said that to me. Various people in my life have said that to me. And it is good to hear it. Yes. Well, when someone, someone who you really love and who loves you and, and, and respects you says, well, then stop doing it. If, if, if it's making you unhappy and you you don't see the point, then don't do it. And then you realize, no. 
wait, I, I, I want to do it. You right. Know, um, and, you fight back. You fight then you back. get that spirit again exactly. of why you wanted it in the first yeah. place. You, you seem like a, a, a very thoughtful and deliberate person. And I would imagine that in your moments of self-introspection, you think about the trade-offs. Yes. And some of those trade-offs are really can be really detrimental things to people's lives, to their careers. Is it possible to define the career of an actor and get rid of some of that downside trade-off? Like, is it possible to just focus your energy elsewhere? Or is that trade-off always going to be present and you just have to live with it? Gosh, that's a good question. I think there are moments in one's life when probably with every profession and every life, you know, where you feel very clear-sighted and you feel very in tune and in sync with what it is that you're doing and you're in charge because you're really invested. You, you, you need to be, there's a real need and a hunger to be kind of forging ahead and doing this thing and, and, and expressing yourself and, and then everything goes smoothly and it's clear and you, you're in charge. And then there are moments where you get distracted and where your real life comes into the fore and things happen and you, I don't know, or you go through a phase of becoming disenchanted with your job or, or, or mm-hmm. having some kind of existential crisis about the <laughs> meaning of everything and you kind of take your eye off the ball and it's at those main moments that you're in danger of toppling off your perch a little bit. And at that, yes, then I think my profession is dangerous because um, when you start coasting as an actor, as a performer, it feels really horrible. It feels kind of like dishonest or something. It's like it performing should be frightening and exciting and dangerous and you need all your wits about you and you have to have this kind of hunger and passion to tell this story and to do it right and and um you know every synapse needs to be kind of engaged um but when you start to take your eye off the ball and coast and kind of not be so invested it starts to feel really hollow and like you're sort of wasting your time and everybody else's and what do you do in those moments well in a way you kind of have to wait to wake up from them and then you and then you kind of just feel really embarrassed because you've just been bad in something or made a bad choice and kind of not really been true to your best self and and then um and this it's incredibly exposing like Coasting in most other jobs is something that one can do without too many people noticing, but that when you, you know, you can sort of embarrass yourself on an international um, <laughs> scale as an actor. Um, and so, yeah, you just kind of, I think it's like, it's almost like, you know, you just sort of, yeah, you just feel cringed and, and, and you have to pick yourself up and then, and tell yourself all the things about, that everyone's always said, which which are true, which is that that you know, it's not a, a, a successful career is not about always succeeding. It's about managing your failures and being able to cope with them and being able to pick yourself up and dust yourself off 
and it ebbs and flows and you go through moments and periods of feeling really in charge and focused and then there's and no harm can come to you and the pitfalls aren't don't exist um and then and then there are moments where you just kind of fall off the horse a little bit and 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 all the the the, the trade-offs are, are there um um but always it's a very difficult job to have a family and to have um a relationship and to try to keep that going while you're flying everywhere and becoming very very kind of engaged and involved with lots of other people in in a very kind of intense mm-hmm. um circumstances far away from home um and you know you just have to that's a, that's something that one really cannot take one's eye off that ball like you really that's it's 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 one thing sort of screwing up um in your job a little bit but it's another thing you know screwing up in family life and that's something that one really just can't afford to do so you have to just keep very disciplined about being you know in touch with the people that you love and and involved with the people that you love or and 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 not letting the job come between you and them I mean, whenever I've gone wrong, it's when I've done a job for cynical reasons, you know, because you think it's something that's going to get be good for you, be so good for your career. It'll get you to the next level yeah. or, or the other opportunity. You're not really into it, but no. you're sold on it. Yes. I always wonder about how people end up on projects where, as an audience member, you watch it and think, why would they do this? They're better than that. I know. Well, it happens a lot. Well, something that can happen for any different reason. But but a lot of the time, it's like your agents have told you that it's a good idea and, you know, you really shouldn't miss this opportunity <laughs> or I don't know, or you just feel like you need a job. And um, the things that you do because you're, you, you've been told it's going to be good for your career or you've convinced yourself it's somehow going to be good for your career but you don't like and you don't really have any interest in are never the thing that is good for your career, ever. They're always the thing that never comes out and that no one ever sees and is terrible and embarrassing. And... um and you know you learn from your you learn from your mistakes, but but generally what happens is you learn and you don't make the same mistake for about five years and then you forget. You have two lovely projects coming out: the really sweet film, The Bookshop, and Mary Poppins. Yes, which is it's a Disney production, which is Disney is the parent company of ABC. Yes, so we have to full disclose that. Talk a little bit about uh, the process of originally getting into a film and then the process of where it goes from there and how that whole thing works from the moment that you're cast to the moment that people are seeing it. Well, it's such a crapshoot, you know, being in a movie. It's such an unknown quantity. You have no idea what's going to come of it. And um, I always say, you know, we're we're, we're producing movies now, me and my husband and... um, uh, I'm just so fascinated by people who put money into film financing. I'm like, surely it's the worst investment. I ask our <laughs> investors, that. I was like, it must be the worst investment you could possibly ever make with your money, um, because the 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 guarantee of a the film, you know, being finished, being made, b the film being good, c the film once it's made and is good actually getting distributed <laughs> d the film actually getting distributed by a company that does it well and puts money into it and gets behind it and really i mean it's just 
there's, so many like things have to work to out perfectly. Shot, yes. And most of the time, you're lucky if your agent and your mother watch the film that you've struggled for three months to sort of, you know, perform in in some far flung country. Um, so it's very. Um, you put your sort of trust and yourself in the hands of the gods in a way when you take a a, a job. Now there's the 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 book. There's the bookshop and there's Mary Poppins, and they're kind of two extremes of the of the spectrum because um, a film like Mary Poppins was always going to get distribution. Uh, it was a Disney franchise, and um, it was always going to be something that was. Um, you know, a huge amount of money was going to was you know because they were making the movie for a huge amount, a huge amount of money. It was obvious that they were going to spend a huge amount of money selling it and distributing it and making sure that the world sees it. And it's a huge property for Disney, and um, and so there was a guarantee there. If ever there was a guarantee, there was a guarantee when I took that job. But there wasn't a guarantee that it was going to be. Good. I mean, I think uh, that, <laughs> and uh, and in fact, the it it could easily not have been. You know that that's an that property that that title, Mary Poppins, is something that everybody in the world, the world over, um, has a, a, a real uh, affection for, yes. and it's everybody's childhood. It's not just. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 my childhood. It's my mother's childhood. It's my children's childhood. Already, they have this sentimental attachment to the first movie, um, and uh, and so you're you're dealing with this incredibly precious, um, you know, product, and and you could easily screw it up, and um, and so. Do it you was- think about that? As you walk out onto set, is that in the back of your mind? Definitely. It is. Oh, yes, all the time. I mean, yeah. That's so much pressure. But, yeah, it's like, is this going to be good? Or, I mean, you don't, yeah, it comes and goes as a thought. I mean, obviously, you have to slightly put it to the back of your brain, especially <laughs> when you're actually performing. Although, there was a scene in Lovely and Amazing, the movie that we, we started off by talking about, where I have to stand naked in front of Dermot Mulroney's character. I'm I'm a very insecure, neurotic actress living in Los Angeles who's got body issues and and there's one epic scene which takes about three minutes and where I stand naked in front of this guy and ask him to tell me everything that's wrong with my body and everything that's right with my body and I'm just full frontal nude on camera for three and a half minutes while the guy goes down and tells me all the different things about my body and I'm shaking my head no I couldn't do it it's kind of an amazing scene but I do remember as I got out of the bed and walked across the room in in with no clothes, um, thinking this better bloody be a good movie. <laughs> this is like, this is just going to be so embarrassing. Um, so I do. There are times where you actually think it as you're performing, um, but but more often than not, it's when you go home at night and you talk to your husband or your friends about it, and you're like, oh god, I hope this is good. But with Mary Poppins, it was clear from the start from the minute I met Rob Marshall who is directing the movie that it was just in the safest hands and I didn't take that job that could be seen as an example I mean you know we talk about taking jobs cynically like uh, yeah on paper that was a job that my agents were never gonna let me not do but I didn't take it cynically I, I went and met him and I came out of the meeting and I met him and his um uh, producing partner John and 
and we talked about the movie and we talked about what they were going to do with the second movie. And I was properly inspired and my breath was taken away by talking to Rob Marshall about his vision for this second film. And I came walking down the street in, in Soho in, and, and outside his apartment and I just felt like, oh, I really want to be in that film. I really hope I get that job. I want to, I want to help this guy tell this story. That's When I have that feeling, I know then I feel all right. And then I saw the movie and he's done it. I mean, I'm, I, I don't want the, obviously the expectations are so high and I, I, I feel, um, I don't know, but I, I really think he's done an incredible job. It's beautiful and it is inspiring. And, um, and with the bookshop, the same thing. I just love the story. I love the filmmaker and I felt like, Probably no one was ever going to see it. Um, and, and actually people have seen it all across Europe. People have seen it. It's won awards. And, and it was one of those things that uh, you do for love and, and the chances are no one's ever going to see it. But it maybe if it's good enough and it just comes out at a moment where people feel the need for this certain kind of story, um, you might get lucky. And that, that happened with, with, with the bookshop to, you know. Well, I've seen the bookshop and I thought it was very sweet and, it made me appreciate reading in in certain ways too. It just it's a it's a great escape from everything that's happening around us in this current <laughs> moment, and uh, a great story as well. And you do a great job in it. Thank you. So you mentioned that you and your husband together run King Bee Productions. Yes. What was the thinking behind doing? producing when you mentioned how hard it is to to get the movies made in the first place <laughs> I don't know really I mean we we it all came about because uh me and my friend my best friend Dolly Wells um wrote a tv show together called Doll and M yes. um which we performed in and um and my husband Alessandro Navola who is a brilliant actor and um awesome person um produced it and he had never produced anything before but but um it was like four friends really it was me and dolly and and sandro and then our other mutual friend azazel jacobs uh, who directed it and then we had this 20 minute um teaser that we we showed to sky in in england and they loved it and they bought it and they commissioned five more episodes. And it was like a kind of family thing. We just we just did it. We made this TV show. And then Alessandro sold, you know, having produced these six episodes in, in, in with Sky, um, he brokered the deal to sell it to HBO in America. And... Um, and uh, and we did it twice and he did it two years, you know, these two seasons in a row. And he just did the whole thing never and taught himself on the job. And um, and we all kind of put this thing together and it was we made money and it was a success and it went down well. And it um, just happened very easily and quickly. And uh, and we realized that we'd kind of suddenly become well, I don't know we just realized we could do it and we realized mm -hmm. that 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 you know that there's no one necessarily you know that moment where you suddenly think oh my god maybe I'm a grown-up now maybe I know how maybe I know more than I thought 
from that experience, we realized that we had some knack of, of putting things together. And that if you put things together in that way, where, where it is, it's about enthusiasm and love and excitement about things and, and not about kind of trying to be the zeitgeist or, right. or be, you know, being business minded, but just about, you know, doing things that you're interested in, something good can come of it. I think sometimes when you look to the old guard, or whatever is pre-existing for advice or feedback, there's this tendency to overcomplicate. And then when you look within yourself, you think, well, this is something I would like. This is what I want to be a part of. This is what I want to consume. And I find and hear this so much from women sitting in your position that when you feel that sort of certainty and the desire to pursue it, there are going to be others who feel that way as well. Yes, And... I just think that too often we're convinced not to pursue these things because there's a way that something has always been done. And there's, you know, really smart people out there who talk about how it's always been done that way. And and we agree with them without really thinking, wait a minute, actually, there might be a different way. And that other way could work just as well, if not better. Yes, I agree. When you look at young actresses starting out today, what's your advice Oh my goodness! Um, there's just there's so much <laughs> advice, and then and then and then there's nothing you can say because you know it's going to be so hard and it's going to be heartbreaking. Um, what do you wish you knew? When Is I there started, anything you a- wish you knew that if someone had told you, then it might have perhaps made things a little bit easier. I wish that I'd been able to kind of own my success even saying my success makes me feel embarrassed right now like that that i've got such issues with sort of like even now so only is that because only. you're british or a woman no i'm kidding both i think <laughs> i think it's both it's like a com- terrible combo um and also i'm partic- i mean i'm particularly bad i mean i really am i i so yeah even even saying own my success made me sort of shiver with mortification um but it's true i wish that there'd be moments in my life and and where things have really gone well, where I'd sort of won an, won awards or been really got great reviews for being in something and like a, a Woody Allen film I was in, Match Point, and then I won an award for Lovely and Amazing and things like that. And 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 I didn't, I almost felt like it was bad luck to sort of let myself um, feel good about it or to own it. I mean, that that. that that phrase is just making me feel <laughs> cringed. But um, but I I just do wish, looking back, that I'd allowed myself to um, recognize that 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 uh, I was being recognized, and that that wasn't. Now you know I had, as I said, always this imposter syndrome, like it was always just a mistake or didn't really mean anything, or and. Um, and, and and now you know as 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 life goes on and time goes on you mean I've got it's hard enough you know it's it's hard and there sure as hell are going to be moments where things don't go your way and you don't get good reviews and you don't get prizes and and so when you do you know enjoy it and capitalize on it and let yourself ride the wave um when the wave comes let yourself ride it don't hold yourself back because you feel like you don't really deserve it or um I think that that is something I regret. I just sort of was always, you know, shy about about kind of riding the wave. And um, 
Um, and, you know, and that's part of who I am. I've had to make peace with it. And of course, I'm sure it's given me other things. And in some ways, I mean, probably a lot of artists are that way or actors are that way or whatever, because we're all kind of screwed up and insecure. But, but I, I do, I do think that, yeah, that's what I would say to, to, uh, to a young, um, I, I met Carrie Mulligan actually at, um, some award thing a few years ago just after her first film in education. And um, and I said that to her. I said, really, just, you know, go for it. Just enjoy it. Just go for it. Just know how great this is. And don't hold back. You know, don't hold yourself back. And I'm sure, I mean, she was she she didn't show any signs of, of, of somebody that was going to do that anyway. But I do remember really feeling strongly, like, God, this woman, this girl is so talented and she's got this great thing. And I just really wanted her to just feel good about it and and let herself go with it. And um, so I I said it. Was there a moment where you felt like you really had broken through? Well, that's the thing is that I don't think it's only when someone, you know, I mean, even when I read the thing from today saying, you know, uh, Rebecca's going to ask you about, you know, being a strong and powerful woman in, in your career. Or something. I'm like, oh, that's not me. They've made a mistake. You know, I don't feel like I really sort of, it doesn't feel like a description of me. And so it's only when I get invited to do things like this, I'm like, oh, my God, maybe I have. Did I break through? I suppose I did. Yes, and, you did. <laughs> it's just like, um, but it's the same feeling. I'm like, oh, gosh, really? Have, what, have I had a career in that that sort of merits all this so i don't think you i absolutely I, have I emily i'm just gonna state that for the record <laughs> thank you well i don't think i ever as you can see really allowed myself to think oh i've broken through this is the moment where i feel like I've, it's all happened and here i am and i'm i'm kind of i've arrived um although there was one uh, <laughs> there was one quite funny moment where I was I did a film of the Pink Panther years ago of, of a remake of the Pink Panther with Steve Martin and um, I was his French um, assistant Nicole and there were all these very very famous people in the film like Beyonce and Jeremy Irons and all these people and Andy Garcia and stuff and uh, and there were a pap- lot of paparazzi around because there were all these famous people in the film but all the famous people apart from me had gone home this one night and I emerged from my trailer and um, I had curlers in. I was going to the set. They'd <laughs> left my curlers in because they wanted to keep my hair curly for as long as possible. And it was raining. So the, there was an, the girl was walking me with an umbrella, the AD, the assistant. And um, and this lonely paparazzi started taking pictures of me. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I think. And I was sort of pretend- I'm famous. I think I might have arrived. And I was pretending to sort of find it rather sort of invasive, but not really <laughs> actually feeling like, oh, my God. OK, I think I have broken through. This man is taking photos of me. At which point the girl who was walking with her umbrella put the umbrella down over my face to protect my identity. And the and the guy that was uh, taking the, the paparazzi, of course, he was English. You're not allowed to swear on this, are you? Am I allowed to swear? It gets bleeped. Okay, so he shouts out, "Oh yeah, like she's really famous," and. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I went from feeling like, God, I've arrived to this man abused me. And I was like, that's really unfair. You can't paparazzi someone and then accuse them of not being famous. Like, yeah. choose. Seriously. Anyway, I did feel like I'd arrived for about three seconds when the, when the, when the guy started papping me. What is the worst advice you've received? Oh, so the worst advice I ever received was to be told to not have an epidural. (laughs) No epidural. No. First or second pregnancy. For my first pregnancy, I was told by my second pregnancy, I realized with the error of my ways and I booked in my epidural almost almost before I got pregnant. But um, for the first pregnancy, yeah, I I read all these books on on childbirth and how to have a happy childbirth. And uh, they all told me that I shouldn't have an epidural. And then I I employed a doula from Australia who who was very anti the epidural. And so I went for about 27 hours of horrific labor without any kind of painkiller. And, uh, and and not wanting to disappoint this Australian doula who kept saying, don't let them give you the epidural, Emily, don't. <laughs> and anyway, that's really what it's all about, by the way. Yeah. You're not disappointing anyone yeah, that's that Yeah, that's all that it was all about. Anyway, I didn't um, – I finally had to have an epidural because it was, it was looking like I was maybe going to have to have a C-section. And so they, they, they said, you've got to have an epidural. I said, I'm so sorry to the Australian doula. Please forgive me. And she sort of looked rather – very, very crestfallen. But anyway, they gave me the epidural and um, – I've never been happier in my life. <laughs> and I looked at this anesthetist and said, I don't know what I was thinking. I've always loved drugs. Why did I why did I choose this moment not to take a drug when I've never been known not to accept one? Um anyway, uh yeah, so that that was the worst advice. Don't have an epidural. Um I will always have an epidural from now on and all my millions more pregnancies. Um but my the best piece of advice was given to me by my father who told me that Whenever you're getting rid of a boyfriend, make sure you've lined yourself up with the next one before you do it. So, and I took that <laughs> advice and I shall take that advice from my grave. Wonderful. <laughs> Emily Mortimer, thank you so much for joining us. This was lovely. Thank you so much for having me. All right. It is the end of the interview. Thank you again to Emily Mortimer. It's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's entrepreneur is Nicole Walcott. She is a service-disabled Army veteran and the founder and CEO of Floating Shanty. Floating Shanty is a center for well-being, offering different types of services like massage, yoga, reflexology, and their famous flotation therapy, which is an alternative method for chronic pain. Nicole created her business after discovering flotation therapy and finding relief from her chronic pain caused by degenerative arthritis in her spine. She wanted to help others and turn her remedy into a business, so she enrolled in an entrepreneur class at her local community college, which I love, and the rest is history. Here she is to tell you more. Hi, my name is Nicole Walcott, and I am the CEO of Floating Shanti. We are an alternative wellness company headquartered in Fayetteville, North Carolina. We provide legitimate alternatives for chronic pain and stress management. Our primary clients are active duty service members, veterans, and first responders. I am a graduate of the University of Connecticut, a service-disabled Army veteran, wife of a Fayetteville police officer, and mother of a two-year-old and a four-year-old, Sky and Grant. 
such a great idea, Nicole, and a very inspiring story. Thank you so much for submitting. I wish you and Floating Shanty continued success. And remember, listeners, you can head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Nicole and how she created her business. We also have so much behind the scenes stuff from the show there as well. Don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, you can send me those nominations at nolimitswithrjpodcast at gmail.com. You can also send your career questions there. And I really appreciate it. I know how busy we all are. Thank you to those who submit it. And thank you, thank you to those of you who have been leaving us reviews like C. Ivins, who says, inspirational, empowering, informative, truly an enjoyable listen. Thank you, C. Ivins. Finally, a shout out to the awesome team here that helps make this happen week after week. Producer Taylor Dunn, editor Michelle Bancardo, research assistant Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.